Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. Thanks for joining me for this conversation with Joe Madash, the healthy building scientist at Hayward Score. Joe took a wide and varied route to become the healthy building scientist. On his journey, he became an artist, electrician, home inspector, and professor. He did marketing and sales and is now on a small team at Hayward Square tasked with developing questions and providing best practice advice to homeowners to address indoor health issues that they are facing. We touch in on the Hayward Score, but not in great depth. So check out the show notes and find out some more about it. At its base, the Hayward Score is a personal interactive tool to determine if one's home is impacting one's health. The system tracks building attributes, occupants' behavior, and 23 individual symptoms, and then provides personalized recommendations on how to make your home healthier. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. I'm Robbie Schwartz with the BuildCast, and today I'm blessed to be with Joe Madash, the healthy building scientist with the Hayward Score. Hey, Joe, how are you doing today? Hey, good to be here, Robbie. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, I appreciate it uh, much. I'm glad that we were able to make this happen. And uh, well, why don't we start out our conversation today with um, a little bit of background. I know that I met you some years ago, probably at a ResNet conference, and you were running around, as you reminded me this morning in your shorts, um, and uh, trying to test everything in sight. And and I think uh, at that point you were selling uh, gear with uh, Retrotech. So, um, how did you get into this industry in the first place? Yeah, I'm going to go back a little bit before that because I have I've been really blessed with having great mentors in my life that sometimes you don't realize that they're around you or giving you guidance until later in life. You're like, wow, that was a great person to have in my life. So, um, I, I, my background is actually an artist. I, I'm an artist by mentality because I'm not really thinking of myself as being a skilled painter or drawing, and art goes beyond that. So I went to the Art Institute of Chicago where one of my mentors encouraged me to go beyond these things and go into 4D and um, performance art and time arts and all kinds of stuff that just really pushed me into a whole other level of trying to um, see what's around you and then be able to communicate it back in a different way to people. Um, and that led me to a, meeting a lot of artists, including uh, when I graduated. You, you don't make money as an artist. That's just a thing to do and have fun for, you know, post high school. But uh, a gentleman called uh, Lionel Batari in Chicago, and he had an abandoned four-story building. It was abandoned on the first floor, which is a bakery. It hadn't been lived in in 25 years, but he was a master everything, plumber, carpenter, you name it. And uh, everything we did came from the alley. Everything was found objects. Um, and the center of the building was rotted out from moisture. I mean, you can literally see a few of the, the floor uh, framing joists. And if you look down, you could actually see the sewer moving through. There was a lot of work to be done. So I got to learn how to do all of it literally hands-on from fixing the sewer, putting in my own uh, toilet and tub, 
uh, doing all the rewiring, uh, all the HVAC came from the alley. Um, everything was hands-on and at a low cost. And that was the beginning of my introduction as to here's what homes are and are not or how they could be. There wasn't the best practices, by no means what I think of us as being healthy or energy efficient, but yeah. uh, that was the foundation for me as to like this is some uh, great stuff to learn old buildings and new buildings. So that was kind of like my original foundation that kept leading me to other opportunities in my life, but that was really the real foundation for me. Wow. How long uh, did you struggle as an artist? Uh, well, I'm still struggling. That, that's, that, those are, uh, yeah, I still do my, see, I, I think that art is something that's a personal adventure. So some people are able to make money at it. Some do a variety of stuff, but I still uh, think of it as journal or write, or I think of my props as art. I think of my uh, presentations as art, you know, cause that was, it's a skill. So doing performance, performance art gave me the ability to try to feel comfortable and confident to stand up in front of people and present. Um, it's kind of where that foundation came from. So I think of my uh, presentations as more of a performance art piece with some animation and some uh, animations on the slide and some kind of prop or something to bring you along on a journey. So that's kind of where that also came from. Yeah. It seems like a lot of artists are introverts, but um, you have definitely are, don't seem to be an introvert to me. Um, and so you probably and that performance side is really comes through, I think, in your presentations and whatnot. It's a great skill to have. Yeah, you, sometimes you don't realize the your life experiences have uh, other opportunities in life. So that was really one of them because, uh, you know, I uh, did performance art. I also was president of my class and stuff like that. So I got to give up uh, the speech at our graduation and stuff. So um, I feel comfortable standing in front of people to talk about something as long as I know what I'm talking about. I've been caught a few times where I'm like, oh, this is not my strength. I need to get off this stage as fast as possible so I learned never to get in that situation again yeah yeah so uh, you, your first introduction to buildings I guess was uh, this studio renovation uh, how how did you realize that uh, buildings or houses were something that really interested you and you wanted to make some sort of career around it um, the career was kind of an accident. Um, I, I knew that I could make money at it. Like my buddy Lionel would send me off to do other jobs so that I could learn how to do it right where I lived. He's like, yeah, yeah, I got some electrical jobs. I got a plumbing job for you. We're going to jack up this house. And so I got to learn on the job and then come back and do it better. But um, he uh, he led me down a path that I prefer to be an electrician. So I became a union electrician. I was also a union carpenter. And I went from being a uh, regular, you know, um, small-time electrician to being a foreman for a company of 25 to probably sometimes 50 people, depending on the day. It was union jobs. So sometimes you pick up 30 people to get a job done for three days, and then you let them go. Uh, but we were doing high-rises in downtown Chicago. So one of them, I did all the interior work, all of the, the units. The other one, we did it from the ground up. We actually brought in the entire service all the way to the top, all the, the life safety, all the backup generators, and then we did four or five other rehabs in downtown, and uh, I was lucky enough to be in charge of the whole company uh, in theory. So I had the parking spot. I had the heated shed. I had somebody to help me with paperwork, and um, but nobody knew that I was just a regular small-time electrician. And um, you sometimes can go beyond what you're – and that was before the Internet. I couldn't go home and look up switch gear and be like, 
what's a, you know, 3,200 amp switch gear. Uh, so people didn't know what I didn't know. And I never put that out of the bag. And we did multiple projects on time, on budget and kept doing more and more until the builder says, you know what, I'm done with you guys. You guys could go on and do something else. And uh, me and my wife relocated. So that was another one of my major learnings about not just residential, but commercial properties and yeah. commercial facilities and, uh, um, you know, multifamily is really what was happening there. And the electrician has to be first in and last out. So we were anywhere everybody else was, we had to be there to provide power for them. So I learned a lot. So you probably learned this balance of the different trades uh, working together and how one trade impacts another trade partner. Oh, very much so. And, uh, you know, I learned that, you know, uh, the phrase in the high rise or those kind of jobs is uh, first in best dressed. Whoever gets there first, their stuff looks clean and it's smooth. It's straight. It's exactly what they want. And usually we give way for the, the plumber because his stuff can't jump around. And then the HVAC uh, guy gets in next. Um, and then everybody else jumps in. You know, electrician stuff is small and, you know, can, can bend multiple ways to get around everybody else. But I, learned that a lot is to, you know, there's certain things that cannot be relocated. So you need to understand that. And the HVAC and plumbing are definitely two key things. That's where we end up with chases in the homes that are never air sealed because they're like, oh, let's just make a tunnel in the middle of the house and run everything up and down and way to the attic and nobody air sealed those things. So it was a while before I understand it air sealing, but I did because it was, there was fire separations that had to happen between floors, which are indirectly great air sealing principles. So I learned some of that but not understanding until later when I really just started working with Cullen Ginge and Retrotech as to what are pressure boundaries and how to test a high rise or how to test a home. So he's one of the people that helped write a lot of the standards that we use for, you know, 779 ASTM standards and all that. He was on those committees to help uh, write some of that stuff. So yeah. uh, he was an interesting character. Did uh, your, did something in your electric industry being an electrician and working in that industry did that lead you towards uh retrotech or what was the no it was yeah so i said that the guy put us out of, out of work right so they're like you know what we don't have any jobs for you we were kind of like under their umbrella we were like their in-house electricians even though we were union and our own thing but it was a great gig i was making really great money and great benefits so my wife and I wanted to leave Chicago. So when that job ended, we moved to Arizona and I became a home inspector. And that's what I really dug into the home and all of the principles and house as a system and how the, not just the foundation, but the crawl space and where the moisture was going and the heating and cooling system and everything all became suddenly one kind of entity and understanding really how to do a great job of thoroughly evaluate those and tell homeowners what's going on and not scare them and try and give them good advice as to a handyman can fix this, but this is something you need a pro for. And I really tried to do the extra time. I was usually at a house two to three hours just to make sure that I understood the house and I could communicate that to them verbally and uh, in a written report. Uh, and that was really where I kind of really brought it all home and uh, allowed me to understand how important the homes are. You know, we, we historically homes have been around as long as we've been around since, you know, since we tried to have shelter, that's been our homes. And we have, you know, probably did better. I did a thing about this uh, not long ago that caves are probably were a much better home than the things we build today. They're, they have great ventilation. They shelter us. They provide fresh air. They do a lot of great things. And then we decided to keep making them you know, kind of uh, better and better. But in the process, we really didn't do a great job of making them better. We just kind of made them prettier. Yeah. <laughs> well, the aesthetic side is important as well, I guess. Um, 
Yeah, it's interesting because I uh, started as a home inspector as well. Did you do um, Did you do any formal training? I did. I went to the, you know the, the the course right and did that for two weeks or whatever. And while I was in Chicago, knowing I was going to move to Arizona and do that, Arizona was one of the first states where you had to pass a test and wow. do thirty parallel inspections with somebody so that you were vetted that you weren't just some banker who decided to go into this as an industry and you, somebody had to sign off on you and um, I had a really good again a good mentor out there Randy West who was a master uh, home inspector and um, you know we were became really good friends and you know we talked a lot about like hey if you see something like Randy have you seen this and vice versa and um, one of the things that I also when we were in Prescott Arizona there was only one other person who did environmental assessments and that was mold and whatever and you know anywhere where you have indoor plumbing you have mold that that's it that those are two ratios that happen if there's a water leak and it wasn't no, uh, observed then you probably got mold so uh, i also then at that time became somebody who was doing i was a pump jockey doing mold assessments radon um any kind of assessment that most of the people weren't doing asbestos testing um i learn not to do lead testing. That's a real challenge to get a lead sample. But in general, I learned a lot about the environment um, at that stage because nobody else was doing it. So I was now the home inspector and the environmental guy that people went to. I got a mold dog. That was pretty, pretty cool. Um, you trained a dog to sniff out mold? Yeah, dogs can be trained to sniff a variety of stuff. But in general, they only could do one thing. Like uh, you don't, you're, if you're doing drugs and mold, You'd be like, well, they found drugs or mold. Uh, it's one or the other. So, um, but there's bed bug dogs, and the dogs all have great olfactory factory. But they're these are the kind of dogs who just don't want to quit playing. They want to play, play, play constantly, constantly. So, they were trained to play with uh, mold in their ball and their things they chew on, and then that becomes a if you find the mold, you get the toy. Uh, but sometimes they can be distracted by one job a deer went by, you know, <laughs> and and that was it. The day is done. So I go back a day later, and and my dog Bear is still looking for the deer. Like, where's the deer? There's a deer there yeah. was a deer here. I couldn't. And he became more of a great marketing tool than he than as an inspector, because they can tell you the tiniest bit of mold that's in the wall that really may not be impacting anybody or could be well dried up a while ago. But they they can be like they sit and you're like, okay, there's something behind here, and you can open it up and realize it was very small. So it's it's a like all tools, they only should complement what you're observing visually as the conditions. Yeah. Yeah. So you made a reference to a pump jockey. Uh, I, I'm assuming that uh, listening to your your podcast uh, on the Healthy um, Homes Network, um, that you're talking about taking samples and, and pulling in air. Yeah, so the mold industry has been based upon um, air sampling onto a slide. It's got some sticky stuff on it, so it says there's a volume of air at that time in that location for this amount of volume and whatever. It's very limited by trying to do spores. So spores are all over the place. They're, they're constant. Whether or not they found some place where they can have a moisture um, uh, source and grow and become more of a fungal growth, that's another thing. But these these whole sampling was the only thing that kind of had it for a long time and then we based so much on these little samples without really doing a thorough investigation and a discovery process and using those as kind of a complement but in general they compare them to outside which was you know 25 years ago all you could do there's so many ways that that has actually evolved into a whole other practice that people aren't ready to jump into so we call them uh, pump junkies jockeys because they were junkies really because that's really what they build on is that you know so i would go out and do three samples in a house one outside 
um, one near the, the return system where I got most air. These were homes that probably had no indication. People would just want to be like, is there mold in the house as a, a safe precaution, right? And I would usually find someplace else in the house to try and do. So I go middle of the house, return and outside and be like, there's no indication anything's elevated here. So it was kind of a, a catch-all. Same with doing radon tests, even though, you know, you may or may not find it in that home. It's just something else precautionary. So, um, yeah. yeah. So it's the industry is challenged with this uh, process of why we think that spores are the main indicator on whether or not you have a problem. Interesting. That's another, that's another whole nother. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, could, we could spend another hour on that. I think. Yeah. Um, so, I'm look. I'm thinking back to uh, kind of my transition from home inspecting to um, energy work. I I became a home inspector and an energy rater at the same time, thinking that the energy efficient mortgages were going to be our salvation, uh, I guess. And then really realized that working in the real estate industry, it was I'm at the beck and call of the realtor. My my uh, next yeah. job you know, came from the realtor, if I did something wrong or gave too much information to the buyer, I could get in trouble and kind of this this quest to close the deal and get the commission uh, really started aggravating me, I guess. So I, I ended up uh, moving into working with, with builders, uh, luckily, and, and whatnot. What, how did you uh, transition from home inspections to, did you, was your next move to Retrotech? No, it was uh, energy. So you're right. I was really pretty stressed out because if you did a great job on the house, then that may be the last time you work with that agent and you were at the beck and call of whether or not they decided to refer, refer you again. And only the better agents could handle a really good report. They, they just knew how to explain to their clients that this, this is all normal stuff and, you know, how to overcome it. Um, but I had a, uh, somebody I knew was going to Southern Georgia for a technical college, got a grant um, that was pretty extreme in terms of like, you know, hoping to get 200 jobs out of a very small town with a variety of energy and skills, whatever. So he was building a brand new house that was going to be, you know, um, super energy efficient, but they were wanted to also train people into um, technical skills. So these are people who are destitute, uh, out of prison, out of work, uh, really challenged individuals. And uh, so there was an opportunity to just leave Arizona and drop everything and move within two months to go to Southern Georgia at this technical college and start a whole new program. And uh, I asked my wife about it and she said, yeah, let's go. Uh, and as you know, it's hard to get into this industry. So this was an open door. I made, took a major pay cut. We lived in a very small house. It was a total culture shock for me and my family uh, to move to Southern Georgia and, and do these things. So I was in hope that it would lead to somewhere. So I had a great budget. I learned a lot about energy conservatory equipment and retrotech and was able to develop my own props and do all kinds of great stuff. And I uh, just recently had a phone call from one of those students who says, you know, I really enjoyed what we did. That was probably like eight, nine years ago. And uh, so one day, one night, uh, Colin Ginge was doing a presentation out in Atlanta, which was a couple hour drive. And I went up and uh, did his, saw his presentation and then begged him to have dinner. And um, from then on, we created a good dialogue and I hit him up about a month or two later with, you know, here's what uh, I could do for you. And uh, somehow it worked. And uh, I was redoing all of their marketing. I redid all of their shows. I went to all kinds of places they really hadn't been going to. They were kind of getting in the middle of the row on a, on a show, which is just a lost place to be. You got to be on the corner near the food. 
Uh, you got to be doing presentations. If you go to a show, you better be presenting. So I started doing all those stuff, and people were like, I thought you guys were out of business. We haven't seen you in so long. And, you know, the guy before me wasn't really doing the best representation. So they kind of let me uh, have full reign of let's just make us, put us on the map. And ultimately, I got to help develop their app called RCloud. I'm like, you know, we need to do something that is makes our industry more accountable because writing results down, as you know this, Robbie, writing results down is just such a, uh, an antiquated concept that you do the tests, you write them down, you hand them to somebody else who then may write them down again or may put them in the computer, and then you all hope that all that all those numbers jive. That's just really, I think our industry with all this great technology needed something at a higher level to be more accountable for. So both companies followed suit and be like, okay, let's create something that we can capture this data and you can't fake it. If you're supposed to be uh, three air changes and you're 3.1, your app says you failed. So you need to be on your game in order to to do it right. So that was a great uh, opportunity, and that's what led me to the, uh, all my other levels after RetroTech. Yeah. yeah. So that's really where you were introduced to building science and, and kind of – Yeah, when I, was, you know, when I was teaching, I, I was able to like – had to like go find as much as I could out there. And, you know, so many videos and so much stuff that still – fundamental to a lot of us, but um, I was able to set up my own test of it. You know, I was able to create um, different pieces of drywall with different types of insulation on it at one inches and try and measure how long it took for things to move through. And, you know, I got to not just uh, learn it, but also play with it and create props and, and teach to other students, which was a thrill at the time. You know, it's great to have that opportunity. Is that school still around? It is still there. I don't think the program really kept it. It was a a miracle that this small technical college got this program. Yeah. To be blunt, they kind of used it to buy new computers for the school and to do a variety of other stuff and, you know, didn't really – they didn't they weren't uh, fully uh, embraced the fact that energy efficiency or conservation or any of that stuff really made much of a difference. The South really struggles with that to this day. So, you know, if, you don't, if you're not worried about freezing to death, as you know, the, the North dominates all of our – environment and what we do and don't do. The South is like, yeah, we'll play along, but we're not, they're not sold on it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Until things that happen, like what happened in Texas a few weeks ago. Yeah. Until the major cold, again, but it's back to cold weather. If you don't have cold weather, you're like, yeah, it's okay. I'm all right with this. You know, it's, it's sticky, but right. I'm not going to, those people, there, there are heat waves where people uh, do die, but in general, it's that they're, it's just something that they just tolerate. So that's yeah. an industry issue. Did, did you have any uh, interactions with South Face or the Sol Florida Solar Research Center? Or any, any oh, I did. I did. Yeah, I still know. Um, you know, Mike Barsicek is was a major uh, good friend and uh, influencer. Um, I got very frustrated. I mean, I'll, I'll be blunt, as you clearly can see that now. I'm not afraid of that. Is that, you know, I, so I'm here working with Retrotech, and everybody, as you know, is all using Energy Conservatory. And I really didn't feel as though that was a fair way to be uh, educating a user. A user should learn how to use a manometer where it's what's the input and what's the reference. And so many people I talked to, no clue what that was. I finished the Saturn uh, training, never knew what input and reference really was or that the gauges didn't talk from side to side. And South Face kind of had some of that, but it still wasn't as clear as it should have been. It was about press this button three times, press this button two times, and then see what the results are, and you're good. I'm like, that's not training. That is just pushing somebody through a process. And um, uh, the founder, one of the founders of uh, South Face, um, got his name just – Dennis? Dennis Creech? 
Yeah, Dennis Creech. I, I talked to Dennis about it. Dennis said that we need to change that because they get federal funding. If you get federal funding, you can't be I, I, I was blunt with Mike. I'm like, Mike, you're providing free training for Gary, uh, Gary uh, Nelson. I mean, that's really all you're doing. You're not showing any other opportunity for people to learn. And they were very defensive about it. And I kept hammering on them. I'm like, this is, you know, if there was five different gauges, you'd teach all five. But the fact that there's two and you kind of prefer one or think that everybody uses one, that wasn't right. So I still get frustrated by people that are only focused on one device when they never taught them the fundamentals. You know, if you can't hook up a gauge, any gauge, I, I, use, I, I taught with a block of wood with nails on it, nail here and nail there, input reference, how would you read this, uh, how do you do a, um, you know, total uh, duct leakage test. If you don't understand the concept of where is reference and input, you don't understand how to use the device at all. So it's not about buttons. So that was that's a side note. I Well, it's, it's a very interesting side note because I, I – um, fall into that biased as well. And um, I guess because of that biased, I had this impression that I'm gathering is rather false about RetroTech gear in that they have dumbed it down to the point where you're just connecting color to color and maybe not really understanding uh, the reference and, and, uh, points and, and that the whole notion of with regards to when you're measuring pressure and you're measuring across a plane and whatnot. Um, I'm guessing that that is not an accurate representation of Retrotech's uh, gear, but because um, at least until the, I, I don't, I don't have a DG uh, 1000, but at least until then, you know, you really needed to consciously think what you're measuring across, where the reference is, where the input is, um, and you know your your tube colors wouldn't really help you um, there. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll go back to the other side, and that is that the TEC did have these tube colors that were very specific, and they had instructions that say press this three times and then press this two times, and were very, you know, I, I think both sides have their weaknesses. That if you wanted to get by without understanding what you were doing. You could do that, and I think Colin Ginger is trying to come up with a uh, a method so that yellow things went to the yellow things. They went to the gauge, and they went to the fan. They're both yellow, and red went to the red door and went to the red part of the gauge. So he's trying to um, – you, you say you dumb it down, but it also makes sure that people don't make a mental error from just putting stuff on and not realizing where it went. Um, and I know that you know, Energy Conservatory um, – I mean, they won't admit it, but I think they, they do. Is that I really pushed everybody to be like, let's step up our game. And so they came up with a color coding concept and have more um, information about where tubes go during certain types of tests. And I think everybody needed to uh, get pushed a little bit that some people, there were a lot more people coming into the industry and really weren't understanding what to do with these devices, you know, mm -hmm. or what happens when I flip it around and I'm outside or I'm inside and, just a lot of head scratching had to go on for people to understand really what am I referencing and what's the input, um, you know, doing zonal pressure testing. You know, some people do outside, some people do inside. There's just a, you can do whatever as long as you understand yeah. what's happening. And, um, you know, even when I started teaching it, I still had to teach myself as to what's happening here. So there was a lot of uh, challenges that I still think that we we're doing better. And uh, I think we've now figured out that we can teach people the the uh, concepts as well as how to use the darn thing. So. Yeah.
I'm a little concerned that we're not teaching the concepts uh, very well. We're just teaching people how to do it. And when they come across something that's a little bit out of the ordinary, um, you know, in essence, we're becoming uh, blower door jockeys like your pump, pump jockeys. Pump jockeys. You know, you just yep. Do a blower door test over and over again and do it in the same way over and over again. And you come across something slightly different and it, it just, you know, change it. it takes them out of their norm. Um, yeah, like how would I, you know, how do you confirm if the garage is connected or not? There's a couple of methods for that. What do I do when I have to do two blower doors because the house is so big? Um, yeah. yeah, there's a variety of things that, that I think still people still struggle. And it takes it takes a while to do that. So, um, yeah. yeah. So but I'll, I'll move it to the next. So, so one day I, I'm realizing that um, everything that we're doing with the blower door test, everything we're doing with air sealing and, uh, removing moisture in the crawl space and dehumidifying everything that, and then I looked at some of the weatherization groups and they have on average 12 to 45 people that are involved in one job to reduce the watt usage of this house. And in some cases it is significant. It could be hundreds of dollars for some people and that's a significant amount of their income. I totally acknowledge that. But for others, it may only be five or $10 for an average for, you know, middle-class home probably their energy savings is minimal. But the what I uh, finally uh, realized is that the health impact is huge, that the air they're breathing is now better. The, you know, we're making homes tighter. And then we started to realize there's some ventilation strategies. We still have yet to adopt ventilation strategies. But in general, we were doing a better job of, of getting rid of the garage connection, doing a better job of getting rid of the attic connection or crawl space. So those are major health improvements that had very little energy impact uh, but we kill, still kept claiming them because utility says, what's the energy reduction? So one day I'm like, I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm done with energy. Energy is a waste of energy. Uh, let's move to health. And then within two months, I ran into Bill Hayward, and he hired me to help uh, move that uh, different level of communication to another place. And that's where I probably will never leave is that yeah. health of the home that makes everything better. We, we call them. Uh, non-energy benefits, you know, these health benefits. But the reality is that energy is just a health um, uh, part of, you know, your, if you make a home healthy, you can have, have some energy savings. That's really it should be the conversation, not the other way around. Yeah. Well, I think uh, in, in kind of a broader context, uh, people have realized that, especially builders, and that they can't really sell the energy side of it, but they can sell the comfort side of it. And now with COVID, it's really brought to forefront uh, the ability to sell the, the uh, indoor air quality and health side of it as well. Yeah, but I, I know you understand this as a debate. That is that um, a single fart fan in the middle of the house that runs 20 minutes an hour is not ventilation. It, it, it is providing some air exchange, but where does the air come from? You know, and I've made props to try and show that that air is coming through your house and it's a pretty nasty condition. If you visualize that, then you really want to figure out a way to have some. I'm okay with different fans that are doing in and out. That that is better than just pulling stuff through the envelope or crawl space or wherever wherever path of least resistance. But you know, just adding a, our concept of like, oh yeah, you've heard the phrase so many times. I know we both said it. You know, air seal it and ventilate it right. Well, ventilate it right is not a single freaking fart fan. So ventilate it right is actually coming up with an equal air exchange. Um, I think that we're now understanding that we can do multiple fans with some supply and exhaust through, you know, a variety of ways to come up with a, a smarter, invisible type of ventilation. It's just begun. 
but I think that, you know, thinking that, you know, 20 to uh, whatever it is, 20 to 50 CFM uh, per hour or whatever it is, is, is that's ventilation and that's really just a, a false realization. You know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's, it's sad that we keep thinking that. In fact, I've, I've said that uh, building science is bogus. It is BS because we believe in the foundation and the structure that an engineer needs to do or the rafters that go along with that. Those are fundamental things that you can't build a house without, but yet we accept this minimal ventilation as being acceptable. So that's building science to do that kind of minimal ventilation. So, so it thing. sounds like you don't believe in ASHRAE 62.2. I think it's a um, – I don't. I, I think it's the best we could do in a, in a, in a pretty sad state for what the ventilation strategy is that people live in. People who have a really good balanced ventilation system, and Minnesota said, you know what, That's you can follow 622, but you need to have balanced ventilation. You know, either you put in a ERV, HRV, you know, most HRVs up there, um, but uh, or you can do two fans that are within 20% of each other on face value. You so, have to do something to bring air in and out. Yeah, so I think I was um, going that direction in, from two points. One, one, I think you you've made a, a you know, your point with regards to how you ventilate, but the ventilation rate that's governed by uh, ASHRAE 62.2, is, is it your feeling that that is um, still greatly underventilating the house, that, that formula? Uh, you know, I, I think it's a starting point, but I still think it's a minimum. It, that's what it, it's a minimum value that, you know, that could be increased depending on things happening in the house. I think the house is dynamic. So there are times when you probably need to ventilate higher and lower. So uh, I think just setting something blindly when you have guests over or you're cooking Thanksgiving meals or something, those are the kind of things that we need to be better at uh, overcoming some of those conditions. Some people use a lot of uh, high chemicals in their house for a variety of stuff. And that, that minimum value probably isn't doing a great job in their bedroom or their bathroom. Do you have any thoughts on how to create a better standard that could work for more people uh, because otherwise you're it's going to become house and family specific which could be you know make it much so more get, complex anyway yeah I, I don't think there's a standard for um, how to assess every home I think there the fallback is 622 says okay here's your minimum ventilation requirements but if you do have excessive VOCs or particulates or, you know, some other, you know, high carbon dioxide in the house that the system is able to read that and make adjustments. That That's really what every home needs. And it, it can't just do it in a central part of the house. It needs to be able to be like, you know, and we're, we're headed there. This is in Two years from now, we're going to find that ventilation is completely changed in the home for builders and how we can actually accommodate how different families live. Some families the, the basic uh, ventilation um, from a couple of fans with a supply would do great at a minimum value. Others may need to be very active. Yeah, what you're really talking about, though, is monitoring the house and having the ventilation system be reactive to what, what's being monitored. That's correct. And, and that's, that's now um, just shy of exploding to the market. Yeah. yeah. But you right. would have, you know, have sensors in the bathrooms, um, and near the kitchen, I, I, uh, I encourage people not to monitor right where they cook because it will only just show you that you want to eat out all the time. It's, 
the, the kitchen and cooking is just horrific when you see the the byproducts that come from it. You're like, oh my god, you know. So you, we'd probably go back to the way we were 100 years ago, where the kitchen was outside, you know. So you cooked on the porch and ate inside because uh, it, those numbers are pretty bad. So uh, I think we're going to learn a lot about our habits and how how better we can ventilate. I, I know exhaust in the kitchen has come a long way. You've seen that too, capture efficiency and a variety of other stuff is now really leading the charge as to you're going to cook. Um, at a certain level, you should have some makeup air. So the, the goal is to keep these things all where they're at. Um, and uh, I think this is really becoming affordable for an average home is really what the, the bottom line. This isn't just for people who can have a Zender or a Serve or something that is really expensive throughout the entire house. That's a lot of investment and can't be retrofitted easily. But we are coming up with ways to modify that. And learning how and teaching people to ventilate at the at the production and source of these pollutants like like you're saying cooking and showering and uh those those times as well as that background ventilation uh that can be filtered and whatnot yeah i added a monitor to my bathroom um and um uh, i gave feedback to a company and they were um it, it instantly goes red. I'm like, you can't tell people that because they're taking a shower that this is a you know a really bad environment. This is normal, you know. Yeah. But what I realized is that just cracking the door on my ha on my bathroom a little bit um, kept in, kept my humidity down to a certain level. And it's especially we we live in dry climate. We're here in Colorado. If you live in dry climate, you want to let some of that moisture move throughout the house. So it doesn't take much to try to uh, change people's habits slightly to keep privacy and let some of this, this moisture work in the house um, uh, more efficiently. So I think there's some ways that we can actually improve the dynamics of how people not just use their stuff, but what, the, what are their habits uh, and how they do stuff. That's really the ultimate. They said homes work great when there's people are not in them. You know, they really yeah. they, they have, you know, some problems, but not really. Uh, it's when people get involved that actually changes the entire dynamics pretty quickly. Yeah, interesting. So I like to go backward just a, a little bit. When sure. you um, were introduced to uh, Mr. Hayward, I, I forgot his first name. Um, yeah, yeah. Bill Hayward. Um, was he actively looking for a building science person to come on board and, and kind of take his system uh, a little bit further? And I guess before you answer that question, you might want to, on a broad scale, uh, describe the the Hayward score for. Oh yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. So um, uh, uh, the brief. So Bill Hayward is the third generation of a family that owns multiple lumber yards in uh, Central uh, California, and he lived in a house that made him and his family detrimentally sick. Not like, you know, like oh I don't feel well. Like he could barely think. His fam, his wife could no longer have kids. Their daughter could barely function. She stopped growing all because they had a, a variety of uh, mold and bacteria in their crawl space and they were exposed to it and heating system was down there. So you could just imagine what this did to the house and to them. And that it was just, it took him two years, their family really almost two years to really recover. And now they're still hypersensitive. So Bill decided to create a survey, um, a good questionnaire to help others determine if their home was impacting their health. So we have a, he has a survey that's called the Hayward score and you take about 80 questions and it asks you about the, your, the attributes of your house, what type of house, where do you live. We kind of do a little bit of a, a, a wet, dry or a hot, cold kind of climate differentials. 
um, ask you about your habits, and then the symptoms you're having. And we give you some advice as to what you could do yourself to improve your house, what you could do maybe with a handyman, or maybe you need a pro to come in and like seal your crawl space. So we really try to give you a balance of stuff, maybe changing your habits. You, you now realize that I'm not using my exhaust fan in my kitchen because you just asked me, does it go outside or do I use it? And they become more aware of their house just by asking them a bunch of questions. So we wanted to take that to contractors, and so we thought there would be a contractor model, so he hired me to try to do that. It was a challenge because we didn't have enough scores to feed. Like We didn't want to be in Angie's list, so then we tried to work with some contractors to do it. We're still figuring out what's, what's the best model to do that, but um, we came up with a lot of great individual action items for people to do once I could say, well, if I looked at question A and B and C together, these things tell me this person needs to go evaluate or do this. So it's constantly evolving, but it's free. You can go to HaywardScore.com and get your score anytime. Um, I feel it's one of the greatest assets that we have. It's the missing link to how we understand our homes. Um, yeah. We're now just trying to see how we can bridge it into a much larger audience. Yeah. So your role has primarily been on the contractor side, not in developing the, the questions and... Uh, no, he's been doing both, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Our, my goal is I had to come in and we we still need to do a better job. Um, so here's one that I, I, I find a lot. What's a crawl space? Mm, yeah. People refer to their attic as a crawl space because you crawl in it or the crawl space below the house we think of as a crawl space. Or people refer to their attic below their house. Uh, those were the challenges we had is, uh, is what people answered in our survey. And some of the data showed that um, like 40 some percent of people didn't have an attic. And I'm like, no, that they just don't understand what's an attic. Um, so those are some of our challenges we still have today is how to use the same uh, language so that people understand what we're all talking yeah. about. That's really interesting because you, you you don't often think about uh, that from the from the average person's perspective because it's just rote nature, you know, for us in our industry. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure if uh, someone, you know, I, I think it's kind of come come around with with the normal analogy that we often use with cars. You know, I I don't necessarily know where the drain plug is anymore, how to change a oil filter, or you know, all these different things uh, because it's not it's not top of mind or my interest level anymore. Right. Well, they also became super complicated. So and parts of our homes are becoming super complicated that, yeah. you know, the heating and cooling system now, you, you need a mini engineering degree in order to understand just the thermostat, let yeah. alone some of the mechanicals and uh, other conditions that are in that house now. That those, It's not the, you know, get your Uncle Joe over to, you know, look at the heating and cooling system anymore, that that requires not just a, a, uh, somebody trained, but trained on that type of um, uh, manufacturer. Yeah, we, we, we really focus ourselves like with cars with a variety of stuff in the house. Yeah, yeah. Is uh, Hayward developing a sensor as well or is that really in, in others' realm? That's a great question because we believe that the occupant is the number one sensor in the house and that you know whether or not your house is impacting you or has a problem. And uh, you could bring in a $200 device or a $10,000 or $50,000 device and it will never be able to be as accurate as you are. That our olfactory, our senses, just how we experience a home 
um, we are just you know, a million times more sensitive to anything that we can do. And people want to get their, the most common phrase out there is, I want to get my air tested, right? Usually it means they want a mold test, you know, they, they need a mold. I want to get the air tested in my house. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but maybe you could do that, whoever you are that I'm calling. So uh, enters the pump jockey, back to the pump jockey circle. So, uh, but in general that, you know, there's a variety of things you can do today that aren't that common that you can do, but in general, they may confirm or deny some of the things that could be in your home that you're experiencing, but in general, it's really your experience. So the, the, for us, we focus on the number one sensor is you. Um, and if you really want to get confirmation, you can do those tests, but they don't exclude the fact that if they don't find anything, that you are not still having uh, challenges in the house. Uh, and there's a lot of stories about things where people were found because they finally replaced the refrigerator and then had it was full uh, underneath was a cat here. And for 20 years, the person who lived in the house swore that there was a cat here and had major uh, allergies and finally was relieved, not because they she found the source, but because people didn't believe her. A lot of people, they have, this is a common issue between husbands and wives or families that people just think this person's crazy when there's something that really is impacting them. And my other conclusion, it took me a while to figure out, it doesn't matter if it's in their head or psychosomatic or real or not. It doesn't, they're impacted. So you need to work with, use them as the tool is what our industry is missing. It's how do I work with the occupant as the tool to help me figure out what it is that's a problem in this house or it doesn't mean moving this a solution. It means that we need to figure out what could be a, a, the potential cause. And if you don't work with them and you're just trying to use your tool walking around the house, you're going to always fail and they're going to not be happy with your results. Yeah. So what's the link then between the occupant and the move to these sensors being used mm -hmm. to guide ventilation? So um, I think that they're, I, I think of them as like a um, invisible and intelligent um, um, ventilation, that there are things in your house that you may not be able to smell that a VOC sensor says, ah, there's something going on here. And ironically, some of the things that you may do every day, like you open a bottle of wine, high VOCs come off of red wine specifically. So you you there's good and bad. VOC is not a bad thing. It just means that 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 um, odor or that condition is volatile, meaning it's in the air at normal room temperatures, right? So it's, bo its boiling point is around 70 degrees. So that just means it's in the air. It doesn't mean it's bad. We think of volatile as like a, a nasty thing. It's just uh, in the air um, as a um, something that could be picked up by either your nose or sensor. So, but uh, carbon dioxide, it's hard to really tell if it's high. If you close your bedroom door at night, you're probably getting high carbon dioxide in there, which may help you sleep better because it's making you drowsy. But um, high particulates, particulates are the one thing that we really um, are, are not acknowledging, that it's the easiest thing to do in the house and has the most impact on your health between uh, direct and indirect heart conditions and, and blood issues. And, you know, small particles go directly from your nose into your brain. They get into your lungs. They get into your blood system. They're impacting a variety of organs, especially your heart. And that's easily corrected in a good home with a good filtration system. So again, as long as it, you're changing your filters regularly and using one that's not stressing out your system, those are some of the things you can do in your house. So those via, those sensors can help determine, you know, how often you should be running your system, even though you don't need heating or cooling, we should actually activate your heating and cooling because uh, it's got a good low pressure. It's not a major drain on your energy. Let's actually energize that and run it more often as a good filter source. So there's, those are the things I think we're headed towards is how to make the home 
um, perform in ways that you may not actually be impacted yet because it's trying to prevent the conditions from being, being so high when there's no solution. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel uh, for these HVAC contractors because they're, 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 have been hammered for so many years just with regards to duct leakage and HVAC design basic principles. Uh, and now uh, incorporating, you know, good ventilation that works, that doesn't increase the static pressure uh, in the systems and still right. delivers well. It's, it's, uh, it's a real effort to make it happen and work well. It is, but uh, they are not able to see that this is a major business model for them, that this is something that uh, allows them to get into the home and do the $12,000 um, you know, upgrade versus the five or $7,000, or maybe it's an $18,000 upgrade, that there's a lot of things that need to be done. Some of the ones that are happening are more of a $700 upgrade that day where they just come in and redo the return. They like take their skinny return and, and move the filter up into the middle on the side and kind of make it look like it's kind of pregnated. And now they're able to do a greater job of filtering it with low static. So some things are not that complicated and are a major asset to the occupant um, when they're able to understand what they're doing in the house. They're, they're really focused on box swapping a lot of times or you know swapping out small things. But they really have not integrated as to let's make this system as best as it can be and make your house as best as it can be. So. Yeah. Uh, I, I just realized, and I think it's funny that it's the HVAC contractor who's the key to a healthy house. They control your breathing. Yeah. Um, uh, Joseph I saw Allen. This the other day, I um, was doing a final uh, confirmed uh, evaluation of this this house, and uh, they put in a um, ERV in the house, but they didn't commission it. They didn't test it. They didn't put any testing. They cho chose one that didn't have integral testing ports, uh, and they didn't put any other way to test it. Uh, the flex duct is is uh, making bends too close to the unit, so you can't get good flow, a laminar flow to measure. I mean, it's just they they're just selling equipment and not not a yeah. whole system that works. So um, since we've had this COVID issue, um, Joseph Allen has been a, um, a key figure. He's a uh, he's out at Harvard, and he has a book out, uh, Healthy Buildings, which shows how you can use your commercial building to um, improve the productivity of your um, of your employees, as well as savings on healthcare, blah blah blah. And he says that it is the building management managers, you know, the facilities, who actually have more impact on your uh, health than your physician. And I realized that that's the same for an HVC contractor, that most HVC contractors probably have more impact on their clients or the occupants than their actual physicians. And if we start thinking about it in that way, that the things, whoever has the most impact on the air in the home probably has the most impact on their health. And now we're back to the HVC contractor. And some large uh, firms are beginning to understand that and understand what they can do. And others still don't think it's something that they want to add on. It's just a, a challenge to them. But um, you know, BPI has stepped up their game with this healthy, uh, healthy home principles. They have this great reference guide out now. Uh, they've had the healthy home evaluator for a couple of years, and all that is just now beginning to really hit the market in New York and Connecticut and other places where if you're going to go to a home, you probably need to understand. It's not skills. It's just knowledge. You just need to understand what you're seeing 
so that you yeah. can then incorporate that into your recommendations. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so, so um, going the next step, you're um, really involved with the um, Healthy Indoors Network. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure I'm saying the right name of the group that. The, yeah, Healthy Indoors, yes, with uh, Bob Krell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that and, and what, you, what you're doing there. Yeah, so uh, uh, Bob Krell is an amazing uh, uh, entrepreneur and one of those uh, jack of many trades, most of which do w deal with um, duct cleaning, uh, industrial hygienists, um, a, a lot of uh, – he did. He was probably a pump jockey for a while and moved past that, understood the limitation. So uh, he's just got a great background and been doing this since the beginning of people were doing this. So um, he was there when mold was gold and even before mold was gold. So – um, he's got a great uh, free uh, magazine that comes out monthly, um, Healthy Indoors Magazine. Uh, we do a show on Thursdays, a Healthy Indoors, and we're now trying to make it more interactive, kind of like the BS and Beer and other shows where come on, uh, hang out, ask some questions. We're probably going to do a once a month Tuesday. Um, but right now we're working on a uh, the ability to have a, um, a learning network where it's actually – you think of it as kind of like LinkedIn, but it's not. It's 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 a similar. It's a, a a learning environment and an exchange environment for globally. There's a lot of great stuff happening in Australia, and in India, and other parts of the world where people are very engaged, but they don't really have the resources to communicate with each other in their own country, let alone globally keep learning from each other. So we're a great industry that hasn't really figured out how to um, communicate with itself. And Bob is really somebody who's able to do that between the magazine, the shows. Uh, all of our shows are also podcasts. Uh, so we're now uh, reaching out to do something that's a global environment with a learning network. So you can come on, you know, introduce yourself, pick the things you want to get involved with, and you know, get updated to what's happening. So that will probably be rolling out next month if you really want to get involved in learning about it. You can go online anytime and just type something in and learn more about ozone or about particulates or about – you know, uh, mold cleanup or uh, all those kind of things all be little boards that people are going to be talking about and uh, answering. And, uh, you know, I think the industry itself knows enough to teach each other is really what we're after. Yeah, that's very cool. I think that's interesting. Well, um, to wrap up, we're getting close to the, to the end here. Um, I was curious about um, kind of three things that might be tips for people to think about when they are um, thinking about their own homes and the indoor air quality in their homes and how they might be able to improve it. Um, I one, one was a question, uh, is duct cleaning really worthwhile to do? Oh, that's a great question, and it's a tricky question. And if your ducts are just disgustingly dirty, um, you may just be better with replacing them. It just is a better source to just, you know, hire somebody to come in and do that because um, if you're going to have them clean, you're like, oh, I need to have these clean because they really are have a lot of, um, you know, 20, 30 years old kind of condition. It's not it's, it, by no means is it something you need to do annually or every couple of years. These are usually for older homes that have had a lot of uh, uh, floor registers where a lot of gunk is falling into them. It's the kind of place so – you probably could do a decent job just with your own vacuum and pulling off a register and, and putting your hose down there, right? But if you can have it done, make sure it's done by somebody who is a NATCA certified and follows a, a NATCA protocol. You know, the best machine is outside. They're sealing everything. They're actually cleaning the registers and inside the duct versus just this v large vacuuming. So 
if you can have it done, make sure you have references and you know that they're certified to do that. So uh, I think it does impact the environment when it actually has been around a long time and you have nasty looking ducks. Um, so that, that it does have its time and place, but it's not a common thing that all homes need to have done. At this point in the conversation, our internet connection froze. So I'm going to take a quick moment to let you know the answer to a follow-up question I asked Joe. I had forgotten to ask about his thoughts on version 2 of the EPA Indoor Air Plus program. Does he like the new version and the general direction it is going in relationship to the industry? Well, Joe replied that he's a big fan and that version 2 will change how we use chemicals and materials in Indoor Air Plus homes. Why, I asked because they now require products meet the CDPH V1.2-17 standard method for evaluation of volatile organic chemical emissions from indoor sources. Well, that's a big mouthful. If you want to learn more about the Indoor Air Plus program, check out the show notes in the link there. Now let's finish our conversation with Joe. So I wanted to ask you, um, also, we talked about duct clean. I wanted to ask you about filtration. Uh, from an HVAC perspective, there is an opportunity um, to filter there, but what's the, what's the downside of just plugging in a 13 MERV filter into your system? Well, First of all, most systems are a one-inch filter, as many listeners understand. They're like, yeah, I just I have this little tiny slot, and I put a little tiny filter in there, and that's a major restriction on the airflow that goes through your uh, air handler, which means that depending on what type of motor you have, it either will rev up because it has to move more air. It actually is designed to do that, or it'll stress out the motor that's there, and you don't get good flow through your system, which a chance are wasn't designed well anyway. A lot of homes have like one, maybe two returns and a lot of supply air, and that's not a good balance system in general. So now you're stressing everything out because you're trying to, you know, pull a bunch of air through a tiny little filter. So most places you would probably do okay with a MERV 8 or the equivalent of whatever a MERV 8 is brand you bought. Uh, 11, most people can kind of sneak by with if they have a newer system. 13 can actually stress out your system if it wasn't designed for that. But there are um, solutions out there today that will fit a one-inch slot depending on where your filter is. So there's actually people that make a one-inch filter with a little box that goes on the other side of it that was designed to be able to put into where your uh, filter goes and held in place. So I actually get a four-inch filter that's kind of fitting in this one-inch area because the rest of it is small enough to go into my return duct. So there are some creative solutions that have been coming out of the conditions that people want to do. and um, I don't think it takes a lot for a good HVC contractor to, to diagnosis as to why my flow is um, high or low with static pressure. And, you know, chances are they, de they never even did it when they commissioned the system in the first place. So they need to, to learn what is happening. And the reality is it may just be a design flaw. There's just not enough return to make that system work correctly. So um, the solution is to think about a, a thicker filter. You know, you probably could keep your pressure low with a four inch filter, modify that cabinet, even if you're starting with the same place, figuring out a way to move it someplace so I get air moving across the entire filter. I, you, you, you're asked a question, most people may have ventilation 
and that's an expensive upgrade and I acknowledge that but improving your filtration is not an expensive upgrade and I think it has the most health benefits for anybody who has an air handler yeah makes sense and then lastly uh, what do you, what are your thoughts about monitoring you you mentioned a little bit that it it uh, might not make sense but um, do you think that um, people should be going out and buying monitors now you know, I think that the monitors, you know, we did the energy monitor thing. You remember that a couple of years ago? Everybody had energy monitors on their panel or, or in their house and all these algorithms that could tell you whether your refrigerator was running or stuff. And they didn't last long. And right now, it's not a common thing to have people install anymore. It's because people lost interest. You keep track of it for about two months. Uh, when I talk to some people, that they kind of use it regularly. It determines if they feel they've got stuff coming in from outside, if they live near roads or uh, other conditions, but um, I think it's say uh, it doesn't hurt to understand them as long as you understand that you could try to uh, change those conditions. Um, so some areas of, of the country, you can open your windows a lot as your ventilation solution. Other places you can't, like if you live in Pittsburgh, it's not an easy solution to open your windows, but I think it just kind of allows you to see the invisible um, as long as you're getting something that has uh, reasonable um, uh, information. And there aren't many that do. There's so many out there that just give you like semi-junk data and you're trying to make decisions about semi-junky data, unfortunately. So, um, you know, they, people can contact me anytime and I'll give them the things that I, I have learned do provide good information. But in general, just take it with a grain of salt. It's just an, an indicator as what's happening in your house. It, it, if it goes up, it goes up. If it goes down, it goes down. The number is something to not really focus on. So when you're you're saying that uh, we as humans are the best monitor in the house, uh, what type of things are you seeing that uh, make us alarm, so that people have an idea of, of you know, in essence, I, I, I imagine I guess that people live with this with these symptoms for years and years and don't even realize that it's an issue. Yeah, and some people don't even have, you don't really have symptoms that you acknowledge. So, you know, yeah. all of our homes probably have some uh, impact on us. Very few maybe a healthy impact, but in general, they have some type of thing. So if you feel, you know, um, uh, like uh, foggy thinking or you know, feel stuffy, you know, that stuffiness in your house, that may be a sign of high carbon dioxide. You know, you're not really have a well-ventilated environment. Um, it may be that there's other conditions or chemicals. Sometimes um, people get headaches um, after cooking or a variety of stuff that's happening in the house. Um, there's, there's just so many things that are happening that we, our bodies do a great job of, of kind of overcoming them temporarily. Um, but as you get older, sometimes that actually says, I'm, I'm done. I now become allergic or more sensitive to things as we get older. So um, that's one of the conditions that can happen um, that your, your body, your immune system says, um, I'm done. I'm done making up for this. Uh, so you may find as you get older that you have less sensitivity or yeah. ability to overcome those conditions. Interesting. Great. Well, Joe, I really appreciate your time today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, it's really uh, been fun to watch your career and, and how you're impacting and helping uh, move our industry forward. So it's, it's great to, to catch up. Uh, well, you do, Robbie. You, you've been one of my influences, you know, just so you know that I've enjoyed what you've been doing uh, over a variety of your um, 
things you've done with our industry, not from just the code, but with ResNet, with a variety of stuff. So I, I too have also watched you evolve and appreciate all of your efforts back into the industry in doing stuff like this. So I think a lot of us admire your efforts. So thank you. Great. Well, thank Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank, Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you, for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast, which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.